0: You are listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. Coming up in today's episode.
1: And there were storks' bill clattering in the trees, there were cuckoos, there were turtle doves tearing, the nightingales were surround sound. The level of bird sound is just absolutely astonishing. It knocks you sideways, actually. get quite emotional it's like the breath out of your lungs is taken out.
0: I'm Mary Jane Laurie and in this episode I'm joined by farmer and environmentalist Charlie Burrell. Charlie farms three and a half thousand acres at Nepp Estate in West Sussex. Over the last 20 years he has transformed the farm from an intensively managed dairy and arable unit into a rewilded biodiversity hotspot. He has recently co-authored a book, The Book of Wilding, A Practical Guide to Rewilding, Big and Small, with his wife, award-winning author and environmentalist Isabella Tree.
2: Charlie, thanks for joining us today. You grew up in a farming family and inherited Nep Estate in the 1980s, is that right?
1: Yes, it skipped a generation, so uh, the, it was good tax planning.
2: <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Nepa State and and what the farmland was like when you inherited it?
1: Well the farm is on this heavy wheeled clay it's sort of grade three grade four um, agricultural land it's got small little fields so 10 acre fields is average it has to be ditched and the hedges cut back to make it possible to crop it it's that bit of land that between the wars was abandoned and it grew a lot of scrub.
2: So was there cropping or livestock on the on the farm?
1: So we had a mixed farm so uh, when I Took on the farm, we had three herds of Red pole cattle um, producing milk, okay. and also a bit of a beef unit and some sheep. Uh, so it was a mixed mixed arable and dairy farm.
2: And so, when you took on the farm, what were your aims for it as a young man coming into the business? What did you want to achieve?
1: Oh, well, the hu- huge excitement. You know, I just come out of college. I just learned uh, everything there was to know about agriculture. And uh, you're then uh, taking on a very exciting project on the on the estate. So the estate itself is uh, 1,400 hectares, and and uh, has lots of uh, property and lots of other businesses being run on it, enterprises. But the farming business was the biggest, and uh, obviously the biggest impact on the land as well, because it was controlling the land. So it was um, a, a farm that uh, that was quite small at the time. So uh, in the 80s. Uh, During that sort of agricultural depression, we lost a lot of our tenant farmers. Um, And so what what I was doing was actually taking on more and more land and bringing that into uh, the farming enterprise. So hopefully covering more of the overheads with more and more land, with more and more margins and so on was the Mm -hmm. idea.
2: Mm -hmm. When you took on the farm, can you sort of tell me how you first started getting interested in the idea of farming with nature, going away from that sort of more intensive production to the idea of farming with nature
1: well none of that really happened until we were getting to the end of the 90s and what we were experiencing on this very poor agricultural land with our farm manager and our farm team and a conventional farming system so it was a conventional farming system with by then it was 630 dairy cows and a couple of thousand acres of arable what we were experiencing was mostly losses Um, a few years you would have profits and you'd slap yourself on the back saying we've so- solved the problem um but then another year or two of losses soon took the stuffing out of you and and so i was experiencing of so the end of the 90s mostly my bank manager ringing up saying your overdraft still seems to be climbing i thought we had agreed that it was going to fall because this this th- we're going to happen and it was just sort of very stressful so we were going um and it was really the limitations of the land itself so Net by the end of the 90s was two tons for first wheats lower than the average uh, UK yield, uh, for instance. And at the same time, you had the, uh, the the collapse in milk marketing board. You had the the new regime with with private uh, companies buying your milk, and the, the milk price was collapsing. Um, and so I was looking at really a future where it was very very risky. And the farm team were wanting to expand, and they. They thought the best way to do this would be to amalgamate all three dairy herds by then Frisian and Holstein into one and have a super dairy and carry on producing milk. And that was going to cost whatever it was. I mean, 1.2 million to do in those days Mm -hmm. in the the 90s. So I was looking really at a sort of agricultural collapse that was driven by commodity prices and external, you know, it wasn't because we were bad farmers. It was just the fact that it was very tough and the land didn't help. These tiny little fields with poorly drained um, fields on this heavy clay uh, wasn't really going to help us.
2: That must have been quite a disheartening time then for you trying to decide which direction to go in next. I read then that you were inspired by the Dutch ecologist Dr. Franz Vera. Um, Can you tell us a bit about his work and how you got into reading up about that?
1: A little bit of background. I mean, I grew up partially in Africa and Australia. My father had emigrated okay. from England. And so he was farming cattle farming in uh, Australia for the last 20 years of uh, of his life. Um, and so what I was growing up with was these quite big systems in in countries that you had lots of space. And that led me down this path of I mean, in, and nature was very much part of what you were seeing every day, and both in Africa and Australia. So, you know, yeah. life is still pretty full. Yeah. This led me to explore um, ideas uh, in Europe uh, and thinking about what the future could be for NEP. And one of the people I came across was this uh, extraordinary guy, Franz Vera. And Franz had, had come up with a hypothesis that sounded so true to me, having come from African-Australian background, that it just made sense. And so I then got really intrigued and interested in what his ideas were.
2: What are his main
1: philosophies then? So the sort of main drive of what he is saying is that if, if you're wanting to manage nature uh, and you, your idea of how that ma- management should be carried out involves no large herbivores, his idea was that that's not how nature grew up. It's not how it how it formed. So the ecology that we look at in temperate zone Europe was partly driven by large herbivores, and that was a really breakthrough thinking because you know basically humans had domesticated animals and killed off all the wild animals, and then uh, then nature was created by humans was the paradigm. So you had this thought that, uh, that the humans came in, cut down the deep dark forest in agriculture which then gave us uh, this uplift in biodiversity and we are the creators of everything that was sort of being disputed by what france was saying he was saying that actually if we look back into our history our ecological history the systems that we're looking at the ecological systems were driven by large herbivores and so that was the, the crux of the thinking which is really intriguing when you come from africa where you've got big herbivores everywhere and, and australia yeah. as well
2: yeah absolutely so When you came across this idea of using large herbivores to help manage nature if you like what were your first steps at NEP then to sort of implement that into what you were doing on the farm?
1: Well it was far too risky for just a straightforward individual to to set about this without government help and so the first thing was lots of discussions with government. Would it be a thing to try? Would it be something that you would support? Can it fit in with the the countryside stewardship scheme and the answer was no. Um, So it was really lots of discussions with and taking a a group of people uh, within DEFRA along on the journey with us. So that was the sort of first step. And then it it began uh, with small steps. So we basically a park restoration project to begin with. So we restored um, our Repton Park around the castle. And that was so eye-opening You know, suddenly you were walking around fields that had been Italian ryegrass or perennial ryegrass, three-year lays, that sort of thing, um, for silage making, which is in the old park, to grassland that had lots of flowers in it, lots of insects, lots of butterflies. And you're walking around kicking up these insects and butterflies. I mean, it was just a complete eye-opener. And then, you know, we brought in um, Fanodier. The idea was to restore the sort of Fanodier Park-type idea, Repton Park. And you had these free-roaming grazing animals wandering around, um, and it was so exciting. Suddenly, it was that sort of relief that you weren't ploughing right up to your doorstep, and this ancient park with its old oak trees weren't being damaged anymore. That sort of feeling of huge relief of having a different path that you could take, uh, which was, you know, it was supported by government, and, and it was, you know, financed by government.
2: How did you get that support to get into the countryside stewardship? Because I know in Scotland we have similar schemes and that's often a one-size-fits-all, here are the rules and these are the things you must do to get funding. How difficult was it to get support and find that way through?
1: When we were just doing a park restoration, it wasn't difficult because it conformed to all the all the ideas. But what okay. we were trying to do is push the boundaries. And so eventually, and this is squashing six, seven years into, into just a quick sentence... What we eventually ended up doing was agreeing with Natural England that we would have a certain level, of bar that we had to cross uh, in terms of restoration and species um, coming back and so on. But we set the bar low enough to allow us to meet it, not with ease, but with a certain amount of certainty, which then meant that anything that happened above that, meeting that particular bar, then could be led by this process-led idea, this rewilding idea. So that was that's the way we, we eventually came uh, came to sorting out how uh, the, the tick box exercise of countryside citizenship or any other um, scheme that um, government has to come up with um, was met.
2: And so you mentioned the word there, rewilding. And I think it can be quite a contentious word and it, it can be quite a motive word for a lot of people and particularly farmers. And for many, it can bring up sort of images of real wilderness—you know, like beavers and wolves and things. Possibly the loss of productive farmland. But but what does the word rewilding mean to you, and how you're doing things at Nepa State?
1: Well, it is complex. This and run, run, <laughs> yeah, Izzy and I have just written a book which is 560 pages long uh, to explain it. So, <laughs> but it, it it's a to me, I think I have to I I have to I have to really. Worry about why it's it, it, every time new ideas come up, there's this 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 battlefield that forms around perceptions of what people are trying to say and think about. I think myself that rewilding is going to be one of the main reasons why we can change from business as usual to something more exciting, and it will be a huge support to farming systems. And what I mean by that is that you know what we're talking about here, is um, the margins of uh, agricultural fields? It's the it's the corridors that we need to build to give us resilience from climate change. It's the resilience that we're needing for um, species that are threatened by ch- climate change. It's species that are just needing more space to be able to to move through landscapes and breathe again. And that's you know, really interesting because actually what we're then talking about is the predators that will eat the aphids on your crop. It's the it's the space where you will start to be able to use nature as part of the armory to produce your, your surplus crops and so on. So I think rewilding in all its many facets is going to be part of our future. It's going to be part of our solution of how we are going to change from business as usual to a new paradigm where we where we embrace nature within our landscapes, within our hearts, within our, within, within our systems. So I don't, you know, the, the, the fear of the, uh, the, the, the talk about the, the hardcore rewilding idea of uh, we have to bring back wolves and bears and there's no, there's nothing without that. We, we, it isn't, it isn't that at all. It's, it's about this, just for instance, I was walking through the park yesterday and I was, with my wife Izzy, and there's a uh, populus tremulous uh, a, a aspen poplar, and I was remembering being afraid of the suckers that were coming up from the poplar into what was a park, mm-hmm. the grass field, and I was going, God, should, you know, and I was saying to the farm manager, shouldn't we go and top that? That's a, that's you know, that's a bit scary. Scary that that's happening. And I was thinking back now, just completely crazy, right? What what I was doing was wanting to control everything to a degree that was just probably insane. I mean, it, now thinking back, it felt yeah. it feels really wrong. So you know, the, the, it's it's a it's a it, it's a thought change on how you look at your landscapes, how you look at your farm edges, how you look at your margins, how you look at those bits of the farm that really have never been productive and shouldn't really be. Um, subsidised to be uh, ploughed up and farmed so it's that it's those the bits that uh, that I think will give us back the webbing and the nightingales and the turtle doves and all the other things that come back if you if you allow these rough areas and rough edges to your farmland
2: and you talked there about a bit of a sort of mindset shift and when you were first starting out with the countryside stewardship and doing your sort of smaller rewilding parkland project at that time was your mindset still in the sort of more traditional farming, and did it feel like a big leap of faith to suddenly be doing a bigger project that was wilding? Oh
1: my yeah, I, yeah. listen imagine three four years in i guess it must maybe five four years in about sixty percent of the Repton park had reverted to creeping thistle oh gosh. And, I, and we were going, I was going, oh my God, dear, 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 what, what are we going to do? You know, yeah. Is the whole thing just going to be grass with creeping thistle in it? And then in 2010, the spring of 2010, the park had no creeping thistle in it. It just had disappeared. Now, the year before, in 2009, the, the biggest influx of uh, painted lady butterflies appeared from North Africa. And the caterpillar loves feeding on uh, creeping thistle, but more more than that, the the creeping thistle it's a plant that has lots of rhizomes and it pops up new new um, rosettes and new coronets and new plants from a single plant. So if a pathogen comes through, it just wipes it out. And so what we were witnessing was a sort of storm of things that were attacking this particular plant. It become too too populous, too prevalent in in the landscape, and then it got wiped out by um, whatever pathogen wiped it out. And that was really fascinating to me. So it was that yeah. sort of lesson learned that we mustn't, you know, timescales are different for nature, uh, timescales are different for recovery, um, and you've got to let these things happen and learn from it and then understand that, you know, nature sorts itself out eventually in one way or other and it'll be new habitats that will be created it won't be looking at back in into the past at, at, at trying to recreate something it's something that's fresh and new and and dynamic and it's not it's not a simple thing
2: I guess it's that kind of feeling of loss of control isn't it because farmers are so used to seeing a, a problem and then going out and addressing it whether that's mechanically or with chemical or something and just having that right we need to step back and just let nature do its thing here and and hoping and praying that it'll be okay
1: the thing about farming and farmers we're we 're really clever lot, and we 're really you know if we 're given a problem we 'll come up with solutions and you 're seeing this revolution in the in the from groundswell up the the cherry brothers and and what they 've done to the thinking behind uh, regenerative agriculture or whatever you want to call it. you know we will come up solutions, and we may need to still use. Uh, some chemicals we may need to or we may not we may come up with systems that will give us the food we're needing without without too much intervention at all and that's really fascinating for all of us I mean I think that most farmers would be really intrigued by those ideas and how how we can use I know from composts to I mean the Ken Hill and Nick Padwick's compost uh, system which he's come come away from after two years of working with Elaine Ingham um, is ex- absolutely fascinating, extraordinary work that he that he's doing in this country.
2: Yeah. So taking a step back then to after the initial sort of Parkland restoration, what were your next steps at NEP? What did you want to achieve after you'd started that project?
1: Well, then then came the big idea of actually, should we just ring fence the whole lot and put in some drivers, as France Vera, Vera calls them, these large herbivores and see what systems they will drive what habitats will they create and see what happens and that Mm -hmm. was the beginning really of the big change for nep
2: and so what herbivores did you bring into the the estate
1: so we bought in um old english longhorn cattle and that's by far the biggest in terms of biomass um on the on the uh, project we've got Exmoor ponies we've got uh, red deer, fallow deer, population of roe deer, which was already present in the landscape, and Tamworth pigs. Okay. So the, uh, yeah, so the, these these are sort of proxy animals. So the, the Exmoor ponies are a proxy for the wild horse. The, the cattle are the, a proxy for the wild cattle that, that disappeared in Europe. The Tamworth pig, uh, we couldn't bring in the wild boar because it's part of the dangerous wild animals act and you can't uh, introduce that into an area where there's public okay. so footpaths you can't have so you had to use a proxy for the wild boar which was obviously the tamworth because that's our oldest domesticated animal and seems to cope very well with um, free free living and then your red and fallow and the fallow would we chose the fallow to begin with and the red came later really because we wanted to get people used to the idea, people using the footpaths and, and local people, used to the idea of free-roaming animals without too much fear of any of these particular animals. I mean, red deer in the rut, when they're giving birth, also, uh, can be problematic. So it was that sort of idea that we'd soften the entry into the whole thing by having a species that wouldn't wouldn't create too much angst.
2: And so for those of us that aren't as familiar with Franz's work, can you explain to us what are the benefits of having the grazing animals? What do they do for biodiversity and, and sort of the ecological system as a whole?
1: For us, the Tamworth pig has given us this effect of the rootling. Uh, we don't have that many Tamworths and we have six breeding sows and, and their offspring, so maybe 30, 40 animals. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is they're rootling up and turning over the sward and giving space to other plants to then uh, come in. But they're also giving that bare earth as well as well which is really important for quite a lot of species so so bits of bare earth with uh, which which are slowly uh, being covered over by different plant species whether they're trees or they're uh, thorny scrub or they're grasses is part of the really important mix we have and that's given us we think the only growing population of turtle doves in the uk
0: Amazing. it's
1: given us the biggest population of purple emperor butterflies sallow uh, which is gray willow, white willow, and goat willow, a a variant of all three, a mix of those species, gives us the food plant of the purple emperor butterfly. And the plant itself needs these broken open uh, patches. Now it may, when the seed is falling, and then you'll get more sallow. And so you get these whole sort of trophic cascading events coming from these different animals. Then you've got the single stomach of a, Exmoor pony with its mouth, with teeth on the top, it nips, it it eats things differently, it carries different viruses around the landscape uh, from plant to plant than a cow, for instance. And then you've got the old English longhorn, and that's giving us all these other traits. It's got four stomachs, it's got no teeth on the front of its mouth, so it has a long tongue, it rips grasses, It, it eats woody shrubby plants as well, because it's an old breed, it's not a modern breed. So there are all these traits that have been given to us. And I guess the importance of what Vera is saying is without those drivers of the system, what would happen in with enough water, enough uh, in our climate and temperate in Europe, the landscape would revert naturally to a closed canopy woodland. And closed canopy woodland very good for fungi and, and a few other species, but actually very poor in most species. So closed canopy woodland is not what you're wanting. You're wanting this more fragmented landscape this with sunlight hitting the the floor of the or the ground. what's happened at Nep you've got this vegetation pulse from all the arable ground that was left to revert, however it was wanting to revert to with the thorny scrub and the oak trees and all the other things and the grasses and so on forming, but being driven and stopped to uh, from reverting just to close canopy woodland by the large herbivores so you have this battle between vegetation succession and the large herbivores then fighting back and and that that interesting bit in the middle there where they where you have pushback from the herbivores and the vegetation still wanting to take over that's where you get all these extraordinary little marginal areas where you where, where life pours in and that's where the strength of it comes for us I and mean, that's where the successes we're seeing with our bird population and our insects and so on is coming from
2: you mentioned there that you've essentially ring fenced the whole estate so if there's no internal fences inside I'm I'm imagining animal husbandry and animal welfare must be a bit of a challenge sometimes presumably you still need to do um, record keeping births and deaths and medicines and things like that how difficult is that when you've got a large area and a lot of different animals to deal with
1: so the the main I mean the deer you shoot Um, so that's easy enough well it's not easy but it's that that's that's how you control populations yeah the cattle you have to comply with all health and welfare uh, issues so you're you're as a farm so there's nothing different there you've got to you put put you've got to get your tag in the calf's ear within two weeks and so on and so on because you've now got a landscape with this very complex landscape with trees forming and scrub and open spaces and it's very very mixed you can't you know you can't just walk into a field now and and push some animals out of it you've got to come up with different solutions and we started off by jumping onto lots of quads and even had some Camargue horses that we um, imported to see if we could use them to round up the cattle but what we eventually came up with was an American called Bud Williams we'd been introduced to and he had made his name in America North America by solving solving big issues with you know if you have sixty thousand hectares on the border between Mexico and, and North America and your scrub cattle you can't get out of a out of a ravine you would send for Bud and then he would train up your your team to be able to then get the animals out of the ravine for instance Bud uh, sold us um, about seventy hours of uh, how he uh, how he had honed his technique of being able to control animals on foot and poor pat toe our stockman uh, then had to learn this and so he, sp- <laughs> he spent two years basically learning the bud technique and now you know Pat doesn't work every time but pat will go out find a herd within the area start them moving just walking never never get them to run and it doesn't really matter which direction they walk in because there's a ring fence. And if they meet a fence, they'll carry on going around the ring fence until we've got them into the collecting yard. And so Pat now, with uh, help of one other, will be able to take those animals and put them into a holding yard to do the TB testing or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's, that's been a huge breakthrough because before you were chasing them through scrub. And if an old girl got uh, tired and exhausted and terrified, would then just end up um, sitting in a hedge, um, refusing to budge. And if you've got a TP test, you can't you can't have that. You've got to have the animal in. Yeah. So this technique has been revolutionary for us. And if you think of it, as soon as you get a, a small a part of the total herd moving, they start bellowing. Don't know C- cows and calves will start talking to each other, and that like mercury brings in the the other animals all to the one movement. And you start to find animals coming out of the bush. And joining this this walking herd and eventually they know where they're going and they just walk uh, you know quietly in, into the collecting yard. So that's that's now how we do it and we've been doing that now for four or five years.
2: I'm sure it was probably stressful to begin with till everyone learned the technique but often handling livestock I mean I've, uh, I know for a lot of people it's a surefire way to fall out with your, your family or your colleagues <laughs> is trying to handle cattle or sheep isn't it so it sounds like a, a stress-free way of doing things. So, what do you do with the produce from your cattle and pigs? Is it sold directly to producers or to to the public directly?
1: We were really always being asked, "Can we buy your meat?" Yeah, for many years, we were just selling wholesale, and so we sell about seventy five tons live weight comes off the property. So we sell these animal, animals to what were big slaughterhouses, and that was then just, just going into the marketplace as organic produce. But that was never very satisfactory, so we wanted to sell directly to our customers and so we've built a butchery and a hanging room and a maturation room and a huge freezer to process our own animals and sell direct to our customers so that's been a huge huge relief actually because it's so lovely when you're when you're able to then uh, fulfill that wish of people wanting to eat what we consider to be one of the best quality meats that you can buy so that's been lovely to do.
2: Just a way of adding value to your produce as well, isn't it? And being able to tell your story of your product, which is produced in quite a unique way.
1: And it's so complex, isn't it? The food chain is such yeah. a complex thing. So actually trying to work out how to do it is really difficult. I mean, it is, I mean I, it's taken us so long to get to that point, And now we're doing it. And phew, we sort of worked it out. But it's been a really <laughs> long journey. Yeah. And that, and that's, I mean, locally, we've been losing all our slaughterhouses. So the, all the small independent slaughterhouses are going. That's a, a sort of final nail in the coffin of local slaughterhouses has happened now. Yeah. And so now we're w- wondering what to do and how we're going to actually cope with that.
2: So going back then to talk about your book. So I've recently read your, your latest book, which you've co-authored with your wife, Isabella Tree. It's called The Book of Wilding, A Practical Guide to Rewilding Big and Small. I'm from a farm myself and I studied uh, conservation biology at, at uni. So this was a really fascinating read for me and a topic which I found really fascinating. Why did you decide to write this book, which is it's essentially a manual, isn't it, about, about wilding? Why did you decide to, to write it and, and what were your aims for it?
1: I guess we're sort of a bit on a mission. I get so many people coming to NEP wanting to know about what we're doing uh, and, and how the economics work is usually the main thing they're wanting to know. Just wanted to really put it down on paper. I mean, Izzy's the writer, clearly. I mean, I'm completely dyslexic and hopeless, but she's the writer. Um, I'm, I've got, I, I've been doing it, as it were. So, uh, so the collaboration was that. But we wanted to. Well, we, you know, we we want this to succeed. We want the idea that you can have self willed land. This idea of rewilding. Uh, we want it to succeed because we do believe that it actually can be one of the solutions for how we're going to cope with all these changes we're looking at. So I guess it was really the, the, the need and urge to to um, put it out there to a wider audience than just the people that want to come on these small workshops that we do at NEP.
2: Yeah, and, and there were some sort of shocking facts in that book that kind of opened my eyes. And even, you know, being aware of environmental issues, it's still quite worrying to read. One of them was soil degradation costs the UK £1.2 billion every every year and flood damage currently costs the UK £1.3 billion every year. It, it, you know, it makes us all a bit fearful for the future, these sorts of facts. But, I mean, how essential do you feel it is that all farmers start to come round to the idea of changing the way that they're farming to consider wildlife and biodiversity and and ecosystem services a bit more
1: i meet very few farmers that aren't thinking about it yeah i think that we're all we're all now because of bps disappearing certainly in england um we're definitely scrabbling around wondering what the hell we're going to do yeah um i think i think my always my it it is really because once you've started to 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 think again about making space for nature within your within your land holding it actually becomes really quite fun and things that happen that you start to observe it's just like learning once again something that you just haven't concentrated on you know it's been there in the background you've sort of known known roughly what's going on but you know it, it's tight and the margins are tight and the enterprises are difficult and the commodity prices are collapsing and the you know and the Fuel bills are going up, and the fertilizer but So, so you're 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 worrying a lot about how you're going to survive. So, I hope that what we're going to go into is a new era of where the the government and governments start to support these land managers, the farmers, um, into coming up with neat and clever ideas of how to bring life back onto their land and. I mean, there's lots of farmers out there who has you know have extraordinary life already on their land. Yeah. But there could be more, and it and it could be exciting for the family and the individual. So, I I I don't see the battle line uh, as as a very helpful. And it, you know there is it does feel like there's a battle line. You know I'm constantly harangued by people um, shouting food security, and I'm sort of thinking, well, you know we've got we've got to come up together solutions for this because it's it is our future and our children's future and we can't just we can't faff around we, we've got limited time and yeah. we've got to come up with these solutions and we can work together and we can come up with really interesting ideas
2: there's a nice section in the book where there's some lovely illustrations of sort of a more intensively farmed bit of farmland and then a series of pictures that take you through small changes that you could make such as um, altering the drainage from being a straight ditch to allowing a natural water course and um, allowing areas of wetland and, and woodland and scrub to develop and to me it looked like there was sort of small measures that people could take and they could decide at what level was suitable for them in their farming business so do you think that there are some steps that all farmers could take to just do a little bit, and, and would that be enough? Do you think?
1: I don't think the, the little bit has. You know, we've been paying subsidies for for little changes for for a very long time, and it hasn't yeah. worked. Yeah. Okay. So it it has to be it has to be much more radical thinking for us farmers. And I go back to my my aspen and its and its suckers. We cannot be afraid of nature trying to take over a small bit of our land and want a new kid it's that feeling that, and, and you know i felt it because that was what i was feeling at the time it was like oh dear what's gonna what are we gonna do about this and i and look, you know literally it's that feeling that we have to we have to do something radical and that radical thing will have to be tempered by the need to make individual farmers profitable and sustainable it has to be done with good government policy and good governance, because that does make a huge difference to how we all behave. Um, and I guess, you know, one of the solutions out there, I feel, is rewilding and can be part of both the cultural landscape, can be part of, we're just, you know, so if we, if we think back two or three centuries and what farms would look like, um, productive farms, There would have been lots of scrubby areas that just you couldn't, you know, you you may get to once every decade and clear them out and start again. But actually, that space for nature is is what we're trying to promote here, and and this idea that it's it can be done on many different scales and it can be done with, with 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 a new attitude, a new a new thinking to how one manages and looks after. What will be handed on to generation and generation hopefully of farmers to come
2: yeah you had an, an interesting idea that in in the book that there's like shifting perceptions within living memory and as you say if you go back several hundred years things would have looked different but as things have changed it, the, the the living memory of what things look like has has changed so we're all now used to sort of the neater hedgerows and and everything being straight and larger fields because that's what we know but you know 50 100 years ago things would have looked different so I guess you know there's some there's some bold statements in the book as well about uh one was the plow is humankind's most destructive invention or one of humankind's most destructive invention. I think a lot of people public as well as farmers like to think of n- neatly cultivated fields and hedgerows you know as green and pleasant land or the sort of rolling uplands up where you know it's heather management and and not woodland or or scrub as as picturesque and how the landscape in the u k should look but what would, what would you say to that?
1: I don't know if you've ever been to Philip of Macedon's tomb in northern Greece, in no. Pellia. It's now about 10 miles from the coast uh, of the Med. And it used to be a town that was on the edge of the Med. And what you're looking at is a delta system that has been formed over thousands of years from ploughing. The plowed land in the hills around uh, that coastal town have been, uh, the soil from the tops of those the, those hills have all been washed down into this huge delta system. And it was the plow. I think that, you know, the, it, it, it's not a radical thought of how the plow has, has changed the planet. So all the reading that I've done, you know, the turning over of soil and destroying the biota in the soil mostly, most of the biota in the soil, is one of the most radical things you can you can do. And so if you stop doing that and come up with a system to still produce uh, your crops without plow, that's got to be a good thing. And that's what's so interesting about Gay Brown. It's so interesting about Joe Salatin. It's so interesting about the Cherry Brothers and the whole movement of the, of the regenerative agriculture. And that, that to me, um, I think it's just, it's just one of those things that, you know, there may be some soils that you really cannot do anything other, other than plow, Yeah. but I'd love to know, I mean, Gabe Brown always says, show me, show me where that is and I, I, I will, I will prove you, you can do it. So I, you know, I, I think that's one of the things we've got to really think about to so the plow bit, I think is I stand by, Yeah. it is absolutely. one of the most destructive things on the planet.
2: And you obviously care about doing ways in an ecologically sound way and and sustainable food production is obviously a big priority for, for you all at NEPA state. And you state in your book how sustainable food production rather than intensification needs to be the way forward um, globally. But do you believe we can feed an ever-growing glo- world population with less in terms of farming practices? And especially at a time at the moment where we're obviously facing cost-of-living crisis in the UK and many other sure. countries where people are worried about being able to afford less intensively produced food.
1: Yes, and that there's the big rub, isn't it? We've spent 40 years now, 50 years subsidizing farming to give the population cheap food, and here we are with farmers going bust and unable to sustain a living from producing food. What are we? We're coming up to 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, The UN uh, population division is talking about 11 billion by 2100. The UN's figures come down a bit from the 40% waste, but now one third of all our uh, produce is wasted. Um, These are big questions and and nutrient transference and water transference from different countries to, to importing food. They, they are big questions I, I i think one of the one of the most intriguing um thoughts uh, that i heard from a there was a meeting um, Soil association held an annual meeting a year last april and tim benton professor tim benton who's the chatham house um lead on the environment was giving a talk to the Soil association and one of the things that was coming up uh, was food security and he was saying that he'd worked out that if Europeans shifted away from meat eating by 15%, so half a day a week. That was equivalent to all the grain exported from Ukraine and Russia. Now, thinking that through, that tells us something quite profound and big, doesn't It's producing grain to feed to animals, to then be eaten by humans. Is a very inefficient way of using land. So I think what I'm really saying in all of that is that, you know, it's incredibly complex, agricultural systems and where the food comes from, how it's produced and what it's produced for, whether it's biodigesters or solar panels or or, or, or oilseed grape for fuel, or, or there's a whole lot of demands from uh, from society, from land and produce. We mustn't in my book, then get so scared by that, that we don't think we'll ever come up with any solutions and that we must take more and more land back into farming. In terms of acreage, Hectorage, I think there's six million hectares in the UK or Britain under the under the plough. And that's the lowest it's ever been since the war. Part of the, the, the drive then, can't be going back to putting more and more land out of the plough because we're worried about food uh, security. We've got to come up with different solutions to food security, whether that's precision fermentation or um, or, or these ideas that you're producing proteins and, and fats from, from vats of yeasts that are going to be put into the processed foods, for instance. There must be other ways that we can come up with that we can sustain the ever-growing population uh, at not the cost of the planet.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and just going off on a bit of a tangent there, your farming business has also evolved to include ecotourism and and inviting people onto the estate to see what you're doing. So, what sort of experiences do you offer the public, and how important is that to your farming future on this of the business?
1: Well, for for us, the uh, the tourism business has been completely revolutionary. I, I was rather against it. I, I must say, the, the rest of the team, were are not. Um, and actually, what, what's lovely is, is actually having this business now because it's not only profitable, but it's just nice having people come and experience what we're giving them. And we've based our idea for our tourism business on a sort of educational model. So you're, you've got your glamping units, you've got your pitch-up um, areas where you can put your tent so it can cater for anyone's purse, we hope. But we also have safaris and we have 25, 26 ecologists that take small groups of 10 to 12 people out into the landscape. And we then get those ecologists to uh, explore with the guests what they're looking at. And that's just lovely. It's a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing to to hear the enthusiasm of these people coming off these courses or not courses but uh, traveling into their own landscapes and understanding what's going on a little bit is just lovely so that that's our model for the tourism and it's been hugely important for our business model to have that.
2: And what would you say is your biggest highlight from managing Nep Estate as a wilded place to be?
1: So on Saturday morning at dawn I went out into the Southern block of the estate, and there were storks bill clattering in the trees. there were cuckoos, there were turtle doves turring. The nightingales were surround sound. The level of bird sound is just absolutely astonishing. It knocks you sideways, actually. You get quite emotional. It's like the, the breath out of your lungs is taken out. I guess the sort of highlight is that sort of surround sound of noise as the African migrants start to pour in and uh, shove aside some of the English uh, resident bird species. And that feeling that, the, uh, that life is just pouring back into this pretty poor bit of agricultural land in southern England.
2: That sounds wonderful, and I hope one day I get a chance to come in, visit an epistate, and see and feel and hear that for myself. Thank you so much for your time today, Charlie, it's been fascinating talking to you.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to our sister shows, Natural Capital and Thrill of the Hill. They cover a range of environmental topics and upland farming. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find more information about Charlie and Isabella's books in the show notes.
1: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.